good morning, everyone. Jeannie, thank you for that wonderful prayer. And Amanda, she kind of walked out, but that was just an incredible prayer vision for the children of the church. And shout out to the violin section this morning. Praise the Lord. Uh, as you're just kind of constantly doing this for those lessons, you're like, I need some return on investment, right? So thank God for that. Uh, you know, uh, this church loves children and loves families, and it's been a special part of this church for many, many years. It's kind of like the DNA ethos, if you will. Uh, we're the kind of church where, you know, a baby crying in service isn't a distraction, it's a good sound, or kids running through the lobbies uh, isn't, you know, destructive in our eyes, it's joyful, right? <laughs> We're the kind of church that loves seeing young people, teenagers, step up for the first time, take uh, a leadership role in some way, serve Jesus in some way, and grow in him. We believe that the future belongs to the young. It does. It's interesting, like, when you look at faith transfer, right? The, the gospel of Jesus moving from one generation to the next, we here believe that faith transfers very well when young people receive an authentic expression of the love of Christ from genuine disciples. Now, what does that look like in the lives of our kids? Well, one, it looks like mom and dad modeling that in the home. That's number one. That's always the foundation of faith transfer. But then two, it looks like kids feeling like church is safe, that it's a loving and accepting space where it feels like we belong here. We're part of this family. And uh, it's also a place where when they leave it, they would say, I was vital to everything that took place today. That mindset has caused us to make a couple of important decisions here. Uh, one important decision is, that we are not going to try to entertain children into the kingdom of God. Instead, we want to empower children into the kingdom of God. We want children to grow up here and say, you know, that wasn't mom and dad's faith walk. That's mine. And the other intentional decision is this. If you want that to happen, Jesus was a master at inviting and challenging which means then that children can do hard things. We can set the bar high. We can let children have deep conversations. You know, youth group has been going through a couple of series over the last two years where it's like, bring your like worst, goriest, hardest question that you have about faith and let's talk about it. I think that's really cool because they're capable of having those hard conversations and capable of memorizing scripture and they're capable at, in, in sitting in church. We really believe that. We encourage children to be in church from the time they're babies. Even if it's like, oh, they're going to cry in service. It's like, it's okay. Like, they cry. It's like, okay, I can do something about that. My kids have done everything you can think of under the sun <laughs> in church. I'm not going to tell you any of the stories because then I'd have to pay them like five bucks for embarrassing them. They are our entrustment 
And they are our greatest potential. That's why we believe in them. You can open your Bibles with me in Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, and you put your finger on verse 28, and let me just kind of recap where we are. Remember, Luke is a travel gospel from Luke 9.51 forward. Luke is chronicling this nine-month-long journey that Jesus is taking to arrive at Jerusalem right at the beginning of Passion Week. The journey is a, a zigzag pattern, if you will. He's moving from Galilee to Samaria to Perea to Judea. He visits over 35 locations as he is arriving at just the right time into Jerusalem. And there is an electricity in the air. If you look at John's gospel, we read that just prior to the scene that we're going to look at this morning, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. Think about that. Think about the stir, the news spreading like wildfire. The entourage making its way to Jerusalem is just increasing in numbers. People are coming alongside Jesus, hoping for a word, hoping for a touch. Now, normally, Jerusalem, scholars believe, would increase sixfold in population during this Passover celebration. And I have the feeling that this is going to be a year of record attendance as people hear that Jesus is coming. Now, all of this activity, crowds gathering, disciples following, religious leaders plotting, it's a kind of powder keg dynamic. And I think we get a sense of this in our own culture every four years as election cycles come about. There's just this energy that starts developing and even animosity in some. I was speaking to one of my friends. He's a pastor off Cape. Just came to the region of the Northeast about 18 months ago. He's from Arizona and He's been doing a great job with his church. The church started around 80 people, and they've grown up to about 250 at this point. He's a forward-looking guy, and as he's looking ahead to the elections, he said, you know, I want to spend the next year and a half preparing my people to handle this next election well. I think that this is going to be a significant election. And he's not doing this because he wants to set up a certain political candidate or promote some kind of political agenda. He's doing this because, let's just be honest, there's a lot of mudslinging that happens, a lot of vitriol. We can find ourselves in that. And I sense that he's right about this. You know, I'm asking myself the question, you know, how could we, the followers of Jesus, differentiate ourselves this upcoming election? How could we talk like Jesus would have talked and loved like he would have loved? Instead of being chicken little that's running around like the sky's falling, if this doesn't happen in this particular election, everything's going to turn in the wrong direction. How do we become the sensibility and the peace of Christ? Yeah, I've come to find that we can differentiate ourselves in election cycles because we believe 
and a sovereign God. I love what Daniel says in Daniel 2.21. He says this of God, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Do you ever stop and you know, step outside of the situation and ask yourself the question, is God biting his nails right now? Is he worried? Is he fearful? Is he surprised? No, he's not. And if we have confidence in the sovereignty of God, we don't have to get caught up, swept up in all of the electricity. Now, that electricity that we experience every four years, I have a feeling that Jerusalem is like that right now, but on steroids. It's a powder keg dynamic, and Jesus is about to pour gasoline upon the fire. We're going to break this story up in three scenes. The first scene, we're going to see that Jesus is launching his official campaign. And that begins in verse 28 of uh, chapter 19. The text says, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you where, on entering, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Now, it's interesting in the geography, Jesus is about two miles away from Jerusalem when he makes this very specific request for a ride. R.T. France, a, a scholar, says after walking some 100 miles from Galilee, Jesus, who is never recorded as writing anything elsewhere in the Gospels, hardly needed a ride for the last mile, which was all downhill from here. So now you have to ask the question, why? Why is he sending these disciples off asking for this ride? And the answer is that when Jesus mounted the donkey, and not just any donkey, by the way, but a very specific kind of donkey, as mentioned by the prophet Zechariah, Jesus is launching his official claim to be the king of Israel. Look at Zechariah 9.9, you'll see the prophecy, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This prophecy, which was given hundreds of years before this moment, these people knew it. They know what Jesus is doing here in this dynamic. They also know what Jacob said of his son Judah in Genesis chapter 49, where he prophesied this, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tributes come to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. But why now? Why is Jesus 
launching his public phase right here at this moment. And why in this way? You know, as you look at the Gospels, particularly in the Gospel of Luke, you'll, you'll notice that there are plenty of instances where Jesus performs a miracle, and then he says to the person right after performing the miracle, don't tell anyone about this. For example, you look at Luke chapter 5, verse 12, and there's this man with leprosy, and he falls in front of Jesus, and essentially he says to him, I know you have the power to heal me. Would you be willing to heal me right now? And Jesus hears in the man's request a faith response, and so he says, I will, and he heals the man. Now, interestingly enough, in verse 14, he says, don't go from here and tell people that I have done this for you today. Sir, don't go on your Twitter account and, you know, declare to the world that you've been saved by Jesus of Nazareth and don't get it going viral. And of course, the guy doesn't listen to him and he goes out and he does this. Why is Jesus trying to contain this? That made me think just this week that Jesus is no Mr. Beast. You guys know who Mr. Beast is, okay? If you don't know who he is, he's a sensation on YouTube. Mr. Beast has over on YouTube 136 million subscribers, and he's built this marketing, monetizing YouTube empire by acts of kindness and extreme benevolence. For example, I was watching a video just last week where Mr. Beast paid for 1,000 individuals to recover their sight who had a very specific condition. So just imagine that. You walk into the doctor's office, a simple procedure, you leave seeing again. I mean, maybe Jesus just wasn't, you know, savvy and didn't realize that he could market and monetize miracles. You think that? No offense to Mr. Beast, but I think Jesus may have had some higher aims here. You know, the reason he's telling people, don't go tell this to everyone, is because he wanted to control the messianic narrative. We've all seen the game of telephone, right, where one person begins a sentence and it goes around to 30 people, and then when it comes back to the other person, the person that said the first message, it's nothing like what they said in that sentence. And, and Jesus is also living in a time where there's been a lot of misinformation about who the Messiah would be. So he's controlling the narrative because he wants to announce that he's the king of Israel on his timetable. And guess what? His timetable is right now. It's Palm Sunday. Let's pick up in verse 32. It says, so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colts, they sent Jesus on it. Now, interestingly enough, 
this request from Jesus was not an uncommon request. It wasn't an odd request. Dignitaries and by extension rabbis had the right sometimes to go and ask someone for their personal property so that they might use it for personal reasons. But the odd part of this request is how Jesus goes about announcing that he is the king of Israel. Now, triumphal entry, this idea of triumphal entry, it's not specific to Jesus. There were lots of triumphal entries in this day. One scholar tells us about the irony here. He says, how strange a contrast to the triumphal entry of ancient warriors and conquerors into the cities which they had taken. This time, no wall broken down for entry. This time, no garland hero standing in his war chariot, driving down the lane of cheering subjects past smoking altars and followed by captive kings and princes in chains. Instead of that, just a meek and lowly man riding upon the foal of a donkey. As we're watching this scene play out, we're seeing something core to the character of Jesus, and it is his humble disposition. Isn't that what Zechariah said so long ago? Humble and mounted on a donkey. Like if you were to kind of boil Jesus's character down to its essence, you would find humility in that place. The Apostle Paul said that we ought to be like that, and he, he highlights the character of Jesus in Philippians 2. He tells us, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Let me ask you, how do you define humility? Isn't that kind of tough? When you think about it, if I was to get up and say, hey, everyone, I'm humble, uh, I've just kind of lost my right to say that in the moment. As I try to think about what uh, humility is, it's sometimes easier to just say, I know it when I see it in someone else. Probably the best definition, though, that I've heard is that humility is self-forgetfulness. So you have kind of two ends of a spectrum, right? You have people that think about themselves too much. They self-aggrandize. But on the other end of the spectrum, you have people who think about themselves too much, but it's self-loathing. And on both ends of the spectrum, you're actually bumping up against pride, but somewhere in the middle is the ability to stop thinking about yourself all the time. Stop inserting your ego into the situation. You know you're looking at humility in a, a lot of different ways. Like, you know that you're looking at it when you're not thinking about yourself so much because you just don't need to be the center of attention. Or you don't need to be acknowledged. Or someone stands up and says, so-and-so did that. Weren't they great? Because you weren't there to be acknowledged. You were there to serve. Or you don't have to fight for your rights because you worship a God who sees everything. 
and he saw that you did that, and it doesn't matter what other people see or that you can forgive. Because as you look at the gospel of Jesus, you realize you've been forgiven so much. His grace and his mercy and love have been overflowing in your life. Do you know when you look at humility in another person, I suggest that it is beautiful. Pride is ugly, but humility is attractive. It has this magnetism about it. I mean, think about Jesus. Here you have this man that has people from all over the spectrum. You know, some follow him, and, and there's worship of him. And then on the other end of the spectrum, it's like he was not what Christians think he is. He was just a man. He was a good teacher, something like that. But even his greatest skeptics and cynics still look at his life, and they respect it. Why? Because of humility. Our mission statement at the center of our mission statement is this idea of transformation. We use three words to express who we want to be and what we want to be about. Worship, transformation, mission. Transformation means growing to look like Jesus. That's kind of like, you know, priority number one for your life. I want to keep growing in his likeness. I want to take on his character by sitting under his teaching. And if you want to be transformed in this life, you need to be on your knees daily praying and saying, God, make me humble. I believe that humility is the pathway to all of the other virtues that we could find in Christ. After all, if you're not humble, you probably don't really love people. You're probably not a gentle person. We need humility. Let's take a look at the next scene. The second scene is that Jesus receives adulation. We pick up at verse 37. It says, as he was drawing near already on the way to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And when we think about this Palm Sunday event, this triumphal entry, we tend to think about the Apostle John's description of this event. After all, we call it Palm Sunday, and it's in John's gospel where they are putting palms on the ground and shouting, Hosanna. Now, the palm was like a quiet protest against Roman occupation. It was a symbol found on a coin during the Second Maccabean Revolt. And this was earlier in their history, and it was when they had basically ousted the Grecian overlords. But Luke, he doesn't choose to focus on that. He focuses on the Hallel Psalms. The Hallel Psalms are Psalm 113 through 118. And specifically, Luke is emphasizing 118 verse 26, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The pilgrims would say that to one another as they were going to Jerusalem. Originally, though, Psalm 118 was something that was said to the king as the king was approaching the temple. Notice how they have modified 
118. Blessed is the king who comes, not the one, the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They were expecting Jesus to enter into Jerusalem and promote a hostile takeover from these Roman overlords. Now, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and he is about to do a hostile takeover, but it's not in the way that they had expected, which many of us believe that's probably the core as to why they ended up rejecting him. I mean, isn't it ironic? We've noticed this before, but on Sunday, Palm Sunday, the people are crying out, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And then five days later, on Friday, they're shouting out, crucify him. How is that possible? How do you move from declaring that he's the rightful king of the nation of Israel to only five days later, you are screaming for his blood and assigning him with the fate of murderers and thieves? You know, I've been thinking about this, and I think that it has something to do with herd mentality. We can become like water buffalo. We can run with the pack. Even sometimes as the pack is running off the side of a cliff, we're still running with them. I I use the word adulation intentionally to describe this herd mentality. Adulation means this, excessive flattery, excessive admiration. We see this regularly in our culture. We hear of people who had their five minutes of fame or being the flavor of the week. We see someone go viral for positive reasons and then we're crying out for their blood maybe six months later for negative reasons. Adulation is a half-hearted, lukewarm approval that is easy come and easy go. Scott Sauls, he wrote a really good book. It's called A Gentle Answer. If you are a reader, I would encourage you to read that book. And he says that, As Christians, we should be wary of this herd mentality that we too can get swept up in surrendering our wills and our ways to the tides of popular opinion. It makes me think of a big question that I need to ask myself and you need to ask yourselves every Sunday. And the question is this, do I really believe in Jesus? Like, why are you here right now? Why are you in church on Palm Sunday? Are you here because you really believe in Jesus? Like you are convinced that he's the son of God and that he laid down his life on the cross on your behalf, saved you from your sins. Are you convinced of that? Or are you just running with the herd like there's some kind of social benefit some kind of loose social benefit that you receive by being here right now. Here's the warning. It can be dangerous to run with the herd. It can be exhilarating in moments, but when they're running off the cliff, it's really dangerous. I mean, Peter finds himself running with the herd just a few days later as he's warming himself 
by the fire of the enemies of Jesus. And he's approached and they say, weren't you with him? In fact, I'm convinced I saw your face and and you were in his entourage and you had something to do with him. I'm convinced of it because you sound just like him. Your accent is Galilean. You were with him. And he's like, no, 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 no. I didn't have anything to do with him. I don't know the man that you're speaking about right now. Oh, you talk about an epic Betrayal on the part of Peter because he's caught in the flow of the herd. You know, Jesus would not allow himself to be swept up with the herd. I love this little detail that the Apostle John notes in John chapter 2, verse 24. He says, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Who is them? It's the herd. It's the crowd. Oh, he's a miracle worker. We've never seen anything like this before. He's just the best. Why? Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. As you advance as a disciple, if you're a follower of Jesus, One thing that you'll come to realize in faithful discipleship is learning to distinguish between groupthink and truth. Just because 51% of people think something doesn't make it true, right? The herd could be running off the cliff. But true is always true if it is true. And Jesus says in scripture, I am the truth. So if you're ever struggling in this world of disinformation and misinformation and all the different ways we talk about it, know this, that there is no better place to go for the absolute source of truth than Jesus Christ himself. Let's look at one more scene. This final scene is Jesus receives criticism. So this picks up at verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why should he rebuke them? Well, they don't like that they're calling him king right now, right? So in verse 40, he answers, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Let me paraphrase Jesus for you. If you can't see what even the rocks can see to be true. I can't do anything about that. I think I've kind of proven myself up to this point, right? I, I have performed authenticating miracles. I've taught authoritatively the word of God. And things that were outside of my control from a human standpoint have been authentication of prophecy that was spoken of me so many years ago. If you can't see the big white elephant in the room, I don't know what to tell you. And what's the obstacle? Why can't they see? Well, it's because they have a critical spirit. Listen to me on this one carefully. If humility is like miracle grow for your soul, the critical spirit is a toxin for your soul. 
We know this, right? We know like how toxins can destroy the human body. There are so many toxins out there, and as toxins accumulate in the body, of course, it's only a matter of time where that leads to death. And spiritually speaking, nothing is more toxic for your soul than the critical spirit. It is insidious and it is deadly. Why is it insidious? Well, because we can convince ourselves that we're doing the work of God while we're destroying the work of God. Do you think that the Pharisees were against God when they were nailing Jesus to the cross? They thought they were doing his work. They were crucifying the Son of God because they thought they were doing it for God. And we, if we're not careful, can become modern-day Pharisees. Oh, you see that person over there? They're a category. He's just an addict. He's never going to get better. Oh, yeah, I believe in the grace of God. It's as vast as an ocean. It can overwhelm us, but that person right there could never, ever change. What about ministry? Where we kind of overly spiritualize ourselves and we say, oh, you know, I just don't see God working in that church. I mean, I'm not getting fed there. They just keep saying the same things. I need new things. Well, here's a little news flash for all of us. You could hear the same spiritual truth a thousand times and the Holy Spirit could keep applying it to your life in different ways. We've never arrived. My dad was telling me the story. He was with a guy and they were fishing together and the guy just got this really humble look on his face, looked across the boat at him and said, I just wish people at church love Jesus as much as I do. You know what we call that nowadays? That's a humble brag. <laughs> I just wish people preached as well as I do, right? It's a humble brag. Careful of the modern-day Pharisee. That attitude can destroy a church. I'm doing God's work by gossiping about this person's sinful activity. I'm doing God's work as I stand above the room and I constantly criticize everything that's happening around me because, you know, I've learned that being cynical is a virtue. I know that people are badly motivated. You can convince yourself that you're doing the work of God as you are destroying the work of God, taking a sledgehammer to the body of Christ. And the only cure for the destructive critical spirit in my mind is to pick up a towel and a basin and wash other people's feet, serve them. Uh, when you have a critical spirit, you're standing as an overlord over the room. When you take the towel in the basin, you get under the room and you serve, and it's hard to criticize people you are serving. What I love about Jesus, though, as we look at his attitude in all of this is, you know, Jesus is not trying to create an us-and-them attitude with the Pharisees. He's not out to, you know, hate the self-righteous and the sanctimonious. He actually loves them. Is he frustrated? Yes. Sad? You better believe it. 
the very next scene, Jesus is crying over Jerusalem, and he's saying, I just wish they would turn. And that's how we feel when you love someone who's drinking toxins. Of course it makes you frustrated and sad, but he's their creator. And he's teaching us in this story how to love your enemies. It's not easy. It's not easy. If you look at this story and you look at the scenes, I want you to notice something about this King Jesus. He's in control of every detail of what's happening right now. There was a, a scholar named Albert Schweitzer, and he wrote a book called The Quest for the Historical Jesus. And he talks about the life of Jesus in Passion Week, and he says that Jesus was crushed by the wheel of history, which obviously Schweitzer was not reading Luke's account and depiction of all that's happening right now because he's not crushed by the wheel of history. Jesus is spinning the wheel of history before our eyes. He arrives in Jerusalem just when he intends to arrive. He asks for this cult omnisciently, knowing where it's going to be, that they're going to allow him to ride the colt into Jerusalem. Jesus is convinced that the way to approach Jerusalem is not by conquest, but through servanthood and humility. And he is there for a hostile takeover, but not to take over Rome. He's doing something else. As you go through the week this week, and you reflect on each day of Holy Week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Easter, Sunday. There's not one second in all of that Passion Week where Jesus is not Lord, where he's not in control. As he's being arrested, he says, I could have called 10,000 angels. As he's hanging on the cross and the religious elite say, oh, you saved others, save yourself. And the Roman soldier mocks him and says, oh, he's the king of the Jews, let him save himself. And then even one of the criminals hanging next to him piles on, oh, if you can save others, save us too right now. He could have. He easily could have come down from the cross. But he didn't. And it's because the hostile takeover was not a hostile takeover of Rome. It was a hostile takeover of Satan's kingdom, where Satan has enslaved humanity since we turned away from God. And Jesus says, enough is enough. Now, Paul remarks on this in Colossians chapter 1. He says, he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom... We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. How did he do that? Well, in verse 19, for in him, let this one sink in, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Whoa. There must be something different about this, Jesus. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. This is why he did all of this. Making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, we were at a men's event on Thursday, and the speaker was brilliant, and he said, you know, Christianity is not about having faith in faith itself. It's about having faith in a person. You have to ask yourself the question this morning. When it comes into the life of faith, we all come to decision points, and 
you have to ask yourself the question, who is Jesus? Is he this king that Luke is describing? Is he this Lord that Luke is describing? Is he in control of every detail? And if that's the case, the scriptures say that if you want to be made right with God, that you place your faith in him. You, you truly believe that he is who he says he is. Let me say this. One of the ways we do that is we turn away from groupthink and we turn towards the truth. It's not about being along with the herd. It's about entering into Jesus' inner circle, becoming one of his followers. Have you done that before? Can I ask you just to bow your head for a moment? As you think on that, maybe today is a day where you would like to make a decision to follow Jesus. Maybe in your heart of hearts, you know that you've never really definitively said, Jesus, I will choose to follow you. You know, the best time to do that's right now, not a year from now. And if you would like to do that, I just want to give you the opportunity to pray along with me in your heart right now, this prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, in the best way I know how, I put my faith in you. I believe that you are who the Bible says you are. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I believe that you rose again to new life. And Jesus, from this moment forward, as best as I understand, I commit myself to following you. Please come into my heart. Please change my life. Please make me into the person you've always wanted me to be. In your name I pray, amen. Friends, if you place your faith in Jesus, the best place to start is to start with your Bible and start reading the Gospel of Luke. We've been making our way through that. I'd love you to tell me about it too so I can help encourage you in your faith.